Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to War Room. I'm Jacqueline Witt. I'm an associate editor here at War Room, an adjunct professor at the U.S. Army War College, and I work full-time as a civil servant at the U.S. Department of State. Thanks for joining us today. Since humans have inhabited the Earth, it's probably fair to say we've looked up at the stars and into space and wondered what's out there. Celestial bodies and ideas about the outer limits of our knowledge have informed our religion and beliefs, our science and mathematics, navigation and art, and yes, war and strategy. I'm here in the studio today with Lieutenant Colonel Americo A.P. Penaflor, a U.S. Air Force Reserve officer who works with Space Force missions, to talk a little more about how we understand the space domain and our strategic approach there. AP, thanks for joining us today on War Room. Hey, good morning, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Um, before we start, I just wanted to say thanks to the uh, Carlisle Scholars Program for allowing me to pursue an advanced studies project and work with United States Space Command to be able to produce some you know, theory about doctrine and being able to explore it a little more in depth. Yeah, so AP's been working on some really meaty intellectual and theoretical work, and I'm happy to be here today to try to put that into some more uh, conversational and maybe more um, maybe more pragmatic or more uh, applicable or accessible terms. And where we often start on War Room, just to make sure we're all on the same page, is with definitions and definitional questions. So that's where we're gonna start here. Uh, we often talk about the space domain related to military operations, strategy, and war. So AP, can you tell us a little bit about what we mean when we talk about space um, and its importance both for the military and for all of us in daily life? Great question, Jackie. Yeah, so start off with really just taking a look at what, why the military, what's, what the military is interested in space. And in particular, space is definitely essential in, you know, in theater communications. We use it for weather, navigational data, uh, for air, fleet, um, and, and threat warning information. But, you know, so that's the military side. It's definitely a critical capability that we, you know, we try to leverage at any level of warfare. But also uh, important, just as important is the civilian uses. So uh, these capabilities such as you know, global navigation, management of natural resources, you know, monitoring of environmental changes, and really the you know, at the forefront, especially now with SpaceX, there are a lot, there's a lot of push that's driving innovation through the development in the private sector to be able to explore space more. Okay, so space, just like the sea, right? We've got all sorts of things going on, military, private sector, lots of crossover. We've got things that are going to influence our everyday life. We also have a sense, you know, maybe it's from watching like Apollo 13, that space is a 
dangerous place, right? That when we put humans out into this environment, things are unpredictable, things can go wrong. What is it about space operations, military and otherwise, that makes it especially difficult or dangerous to operate in space? Yeah, so there's a lot of unknowns um, in, in space. And that, that sounds like a very ambiguous statement, but there are a lot of, of vulnerabilities that exist in space that don't exist in other domains. Um, you know, f- for instance, you know, th- there's just the, the natural phenomenon that happens in space of, of unintentional or, or natural types of obstacles or challenges, you know, such as one is, is the physics of space. You know, two is going to be that there are external factors that we can't influence in space as far as orbits and how how things move. Um, additionally, it, it's also uh, it's also really hard to distinguish what is actually intentional by an adversary and what's unintentional caused by that natural phenomenon. So that's where the two worlds kind of clash. So you know, we talk through how there's limited fidelity about space activities because the adversary is not always known. So the adversary may be again, you know, an intentional adversary or something that that's um, that creates adversarial what seems to be adversarial effects because of what happens naturally in the in the environment. Now, if you so talk like an more, example, just to just to make it concrete, if something goes wrong in space, first you have to figure out if it went wrong because of a natural occurrence because physics in space is hard because the mechanics, the engineering in space is hard and sometimes things just go wrong. Or if an adversary did something, took an action to cause something to go wrong, even though the effect might be the same and the, but your response might be, your response might be different if somebody caused it to go wrong or if it was a natural occurrence. No, correct. Yeah. So you know, and to kind of pull the thread a little bit on the the adversary piece, right? So the adversaries are, are very sophisticated. You know, their adversaries can manipulate signals within that spectrum. So within the electromagnetic spectrum, so to say that there are signals that go up to the, to our satellites that are up in space that can easily be manipulated you know, with the right type of technology. Um, yeah, there's also the kinetic So they can threat. make it look like it was a natural phenomenon when it was really them. Correct. Yep. And That's it scary. takes yeah, and it takes a while to troubleshoot, right? Because you you don't know, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily have eyes in space to be able to see every maneuver. That's why things take a lot longer to kind of to um, really to to not necessarily escalate, but but to see how things really. Um, how things have come about based on whatever act, you know, whatever effect that, that we suffer. So, you know, if a satellite goes out, you know, we, we, we check to see internals first to make sure that it's not a actual system thing that, that caused it to, to, uh, you know, act irregularly or, you know, what we call uh, have an anomaly or, you know, if it really isn't a system issue, then we look, towards some external factors, you know, what, what type of space weather is there that could have caused some type of disturbance to the system. And once we rule that out, then we start thinking about, okay, well, what kind of cap- 
what kind of capabilities do our adversaries have within that same orbit as that space system that's being affected? And so if you, if you look through all the all the steps that need to be taken to be able to realize what actually caused you know a, a an impact to a system there there are a lot of layers there and it's not it's not necessarily the going to happen at the the you know speed of light to determine whether it's natural or if it's a an adversarial action okay so you've got ambiguity in attribution you've got maybe long delays in the speed of of understanding sort of cause and effect and decision making both of those seem complicated. You've got the fact that this is happening very, very far away. And this seems obvious, but it's happening very far away from Earth, <laughs> which makes right engineering and all sorts of things more complicated in an environment that is not like our own. Um, okay, so that that all seems like good reason that um, space operations are going to be have a level of complexity that is maybe different from some things uh, here on the, the earthly sphere. Given all of that, given all of the military uses, given all of the civilian uses, given all of the research, you know, that we want to do in space, given um, the exploration and the science that we want to like as humans that we want to do, um, the international treaties that exist, all of that. It makes sense to me at least, and I'm a novice, but it makes sense that our first priority would be to prevent conflict, to prevent war, to keep things bland as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, it, you know, as I, predictable as possible in space. Yeah, you make a great point because if you look at any of our strategic guidance, you know, the national security strategy, national defense strategy, space defense strategy, uh, or defense space strategy, there are a, there's a lot of verbiage that say deterrence, right? So deterrence is simply just to prevent something from happening, and you do that with a threat. You know, there's something that's credible. Um, you, you know, you you. you you threaten adversaries so that you, you prevent anything from even happening in the first place. And, and that's the primary reason that, um, you know, and, and maybe we'll get into that in the next segment or next section, but, you know, it, it's great that we can prevent and, and, and have that, those capabilities to prevent things from happening. Um, but sorry if I, if I, if I steal your segue here, but the, the other piece of that is, well, if, if deterrence fails us and, and an adversary is bold enough to, or, or feel that they have a credible, uh, credible and, and and capable capability to to challenge in space. You know what happens when that deterrence fails? Yeah, no, I, it doesn't. It doesn't steal the segue at all. It seems like we want space strategy in in the military sense to be boring. Space can be exciting for exploration, for science, for all sorts of things, right? The Mars rover, exciting. Moon, like, and maybe a new moon landing, exciting. International Space Station, exciting. Space strategy, boring. But when it becomes not boring, we want to prevent it from becoming more exciting. So, like, let's not blow up the moon. Let's not escalate to space lasers. I don't know. I don't, I don't have any idea what space war looks like other than, like, 
space balls or something. <laughs> um, but let's right. So let's prevent all out war. So what I hear you saying is we have, we need to have something in between space is peaceful and boring and deterrence is working that preventive strategy with a threat, right? That threat of military force is in place and the escalation to armed conflict. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what you see as filling the, the gap between the failure of deterrence and escalation to armed conflict. Yeah. So there is a, there's, uh, theory from Alexander George, which explains a, a concept of what we call coercive diplomacy. So, um, co- coercive diplomacy, what that is, is it allows, well, first, it, it's basically trying to persuade using coercion an adversary to undo or, re- you know, reverse what it's done. So, what would it, innately does is it stops escal or it, it stops escalation further escalation so it mitigates escalation and allows negotiating or bargaining space so that we don't um, we, we don't cross the threshold of uh, warfare in in space where you know non-kinetic kinetic uses things of that things of those nature actually have detrimental effects uh, to to the environment or to the domain which are aren't easily reversible or are not reversible at all. Meaning that there's, you know, there's no cleanup action in space. Uh, it, yeah, I think um, it'd be great if, if there was something to to deploy a space vacuum out there to take out debris or any, or any types of, you know, any types of, you know, cleanup services, but it's not like it's unlike any other domain and, and where it's, you know, we can't just physically go up there with, you know, with ease and be able to repair that environment so that it can become usable. And I'll I'll, um, go off a little bit here as far as, you know, speaking to some, you know, ASAT testing. So this is a direct descent um, launches into space, you know, uh, China, Russia have done it. And and recent one in in Russia, there's um, in 2021 where uh, they they blew up an asset. Well, what that did is it actually caused about, 1500 pieces of debris to be flying into orbit. So, you know, not only did it just, you know, destroy its target, but now all those pieces of debris are orbiting around that same orbit with, with assets that weren't even targeted and could potentially, you know, suffer some, uh, some sort of damage from that. And I won't, you know, also um, add on to that, you know, in my seminar, we had, a um, astronaut, Colonel Anne McLean, and, and she was actually on a, a mission to the ISS where there was a ASAT launch, um, and that those pieces of debris, like she could feel it, like they, they were, she was literally in the line of fire, if you will, um, from that type of test. So, you know, it's not only just the the assets and and you know machine and, and satellite systems that we're talking about. It's also human life that that's up there in ISS right now that could be uh, equally impacted. So, yeah, so that's a, it's such an interesting point because the the kinetic the effects of of kinetic action have those long lasting effects, and we know that the environmental effects of war are pretty dramatic on land, uh, in ground warfare 
environmentally, it's hard enough to clean up here, right? We find unexploded ordnance all the time. We're still finding things from World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, etc. Um, oceans are full of, uh, <laughs> of, of debris uh, from from humans and from warfare. And then, and like you make the the point that you can't you can't clean up the space debris is a is a really interesting one. Um, the additional debris that that would cause the threat that that would cause to to human life again to the exploration to the uses of space that are not related to to war and warfare really important um i think that's a that's a key a key point as well so looking at the ramifications and the consequences you know beyond the immediate is 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 quite key ap you also made a, what i thought was a really interesting point sort of toward the beginning of your previous answer about coercive diplomacy helping, you know, stopping the escalation and, and returning things back to the way they were before, right? The the Latin, the status quo ante, um, because it can be, sometimes you can't reverse or can't, you know, you don't want to make, um, make decisions that you can't, you, you can't undo. And so can you talk a little bit more about how coercive diplomacy works, the mechanisms that it helps people undo uh, and sort of walk back decisions in order to restore something that came before? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So with coercive diplomacy, the, the, the main point here is, um, and Alexander George uh, describes it as defensive, as a defensive strategy. So or defensive countermeasure, right? So uh, instead of, again, just not not to be a dead horse, but instead of again escalating in, into warfare and 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 taking the the fight, you know, um, and escalating it, what we want to do in course of diplomacy um, is use defensive options which won't trigger um, any more escalation. So what this looks like is using all really the instruments of power. So, you know, um, it, it's it's the dime, the diplomatic information, uh, military and economic approach with very very little military. So what do I mean by that? So when when an adversary does something in space that the US you know say the turns fails and and, and they do something kinetic or non-kinetic that does cause damage and the US needs to respond, right? They can't just let it be. There has to be other ways other than escalating to be able to take care of that. And, and so what coercive diplomacy does, is it looks at all our different options within the instruments of power. So for instance, diplomatic, you know, demarches um, against the uh, target adversary. You know, we, we look at economic sanctions, tariffs um, that we can impose on that adversary, as, as well as also looking at um, ways to ramp up efforts within within with our allies and the coalition partners to be able to really put pressure on that adversary. So what, what this what this looks like in in course of diplomacy terms is um, is assurances, inducements, and persuasion. So you know under those three categories, there's ways that we can employ the instruments of power and, and use our mechanisms there to be able to influence an adversary's action so that they don't further commit more damage. Or they don't further escalate in, into more um, into uh, you know going out to all-out warfare. But what we want to do is put pressure on them so that their 
that they understand that their consequences, the consequences that they'll suffer from, um, you know, what, what the U.S. can do, would be too great for them to um, to absorb. So they have, so there's no other choice than for them to really go backwards and say, okay, hey, we're going to stop doing what it is that we're doing. You know, whether that's through reparations or you know, if, if, if they're not willing to do, if they're unable to do that, then at least be able to stop, um, stop them from committing any further action. So it really sounds like one of the things that we have to do is to fully integrate our understanding of space and both military uses of space, but also the way we interact with space in our civilian and everyday lives, whether it's commerce and trade and our satellites and communication and and all of that, and really understand how it is integrated into our full system of statecraft, rather than thinking of it as as a separate thing, or that we just have to respond to actions in space with actions in space, that it's a uh, sort of closed, closed system, because it, it seems like the things you're talking about could happen, right, sort of across um, the instruments of power, across the the spectrum in terms of inducements and threats, rewards, uh, assurances, you know, across diplomatic, informational, economic, or military uh, means of um, working with, with allies, partners, adversaries, and others. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the the whole integration piece is, and what we we don't often understand for for the general public really is that uh, we use space and everything. Um, you know, for all, you know, not just for for heavy military, but for for the civilian uses. And I I, I mentioned I mentioned a few things earlier, right? But but you know, to to get my older mom to, to the grocery store and she, she doesn't know direction. She's got to use the Google, right. Or she's got to use the maps. So, you know, the, the GPS function and, you know, there's been times, um, you know, that, that we've tried to, we meaning the, the folks that are you know experts at in space have, have tried to say that, Hey, you know, we, we've asked the crowd, what, what, what do you think, you know, why do you need space or why is space important? It's like, well, I don't need space. I have my GPS. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of, so, you know, it's I am really- so reliant on GPS. I would probably never leave my neighborhood <laughs> without it. So I, I personally understand that I am dependent day in and day out on GPS and the, the satellites that enable that. So please help me navigate my way. <laughs> around my world yeah no and, and so yeah so so course of diplomacy what, what that 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 will really ultimately do is it, you know in preventing the adversary from going any further and destroying more things and destroying more of our capability it will take us back down to being able to use negotiations and bargaining with that adversary so that no more damage happens to the domain while then the U.S. still are able to control and you know control its interests in space, control and protect it, which is mm-hmm. you know which is a strategic, which is what is called for in the strategic guidance. Is you know we we want to be we want to use space to be able to you know to do the exploration, to do the science, to 
to advance uh, mankind to, to be able to again you know well, use to a- maintain commercial networks to maintain global communication to maintain like to maintain all of the things that we have and so like fundamentally escalating offensive action in space is counter to us interest and so the the call for de-escalation and for like the again that return to peaceful uses of space seems seems key I'm looking at the time and thinking about again how quickly yeah. 25 yeah. 25 minutes passes by and I want to I want to thank you AP for uh, for joining me today on on the podcast. I know we didn't get too deep into the nitty-gritty of sort of specific strategies or specific components, but I think I have a better I have a better understanding of both why space is important, why this idea of coercive diplomacy with regards to space is important in filling that gap between maybe a failure of deterrence and, you know, that escalation to war or all out armed conflict. Um, and so I want to thank you for your time and your expertise in sharing that with me. I'll give you the the proverbial last word if you want to to close us out before I say goodbye to our listeners for the day. Now, of course, well, again, thanks, Jackie, for um, letting me use this platform to be able to talk to you a little bit about space and then that coercive diplomacy piece. And for, for the viewers that are really interested in, in you know, how, how coercive diplomacy has, has really worked in the past, if, if you look at the um, Cuban Missile Crisis is a great example um, you know, and how we handled that situation. So, uh, again, for those that are really interested in, in you know, where the majority of this research and, and the topic that I'm talking about today comes from, um, you know, the historical example is, is that Cuban Missile Crisis. So, um, again, I, I thank you for, for the time and being able to, uh, you know, reach out to an audience th- that would be interested in, you know, in, in the preservation and, and use uh, of space, you know, and to, to better understand how it's integrated, not, not just militarily, because, you know, obviously this is a military forum, but, but also in the civilian world and how that and how those impacts um, could significantly, lack of a better word, impact our daily lives. So thank you. Yeah. The historian in me will never, uh, never say no to a good plug for studying a good historical case. And the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, continues to have a lot to uh, a lot to teach us it's a it's a really rich one to to study in in depth um for the war room i'm jackie witt uh thank you for joining us today as always we encourage you to leave us comments on this episode or any others send us ideas if there are topics that you would like to hear more about you can find us on your favorite podcatcher listen comment and subscribe We hope you will join us again for another episode soon. Again, for War Room, I'm signing off. This is Jackie Quick. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.